please, uh, in your Bible, turn to Paul's letter to Colossians. We're in chapter 1, 24th verse. These are the words of Paul the Apostle. To the Colossians, the word of God to his people. Here. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Pray with me. Father, you have sent your Son. You so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son. The one whom you have loved from before the foundations of the earth. The one who you find your pleasure in. Lord God, you are greater and grander and beyond our knowing, but you have showed yourself to us in him. Please, Lord, for his glory, and as we have come to him, glorify him here in the preaching of your word, in our hearts, and so where we live. We ask it in his name, Father. Amen. Now, we have been working through uh, the letter of Col to the Colossians, and we've come to, we've come to this moment where Paul begins to speak of himself. But he speaks of himself because he's speaking to the Colossians. So I speak to you. What do you do with being despised? When, when people have a generally negative opinion of you, when, when people believe that there is something fundamentally wrong with you, what do you do when you're despised. I have uh, expressed the controversy in this letter with this, this question over the last month. Are you a good enough Christian? And, and I've done that because the Colossians were being pressed. They're very strong and, and in their odd way alluring influences in that question from their their neighbors, from uh, their peers in Colossae. Are you a good enough Christian? And really, that question was a condescending way of saying, nope, you're not. What do you do with being despised? Imagine this conversation. Uh, it, you may have had one very similar to it. <clears throat> Do you think that everyone must believe in Jesus? 
Do you think that God will send people who reject Jesus to hell? Do you think that I need to give up what's most precious to me to obey Jesus? Do you think the Bible's teaching about men and women and sexual ethics is right? And it's a conversation, so you get your word in edgewise, and you say, well, yes, 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 but we should talk about those things a little bit. No, we don't need to. I get it. You're a Christian. You're just not a very good Christian. You're a jerk. You see, the Colossians, they confronted a high-minded, even philosophical form of, of Judaism. Their, their Jewish neighbors thought that their affection for this man from Judea, this Jew, this teacher, they thought that might really be a good entry point to God. In, in essence, they're saying, you may be Christians, but Christianity is not enough. Why isn't it enough? Why weren't they good enough? Well, they were told because your spirituality doesn't come from Moses. Because, as, as they could see for themselves, uh, they don't live and worship like these Jews that they know in Colossae, who happen to know the Old Testament a lot better than they do. They've been reading it all their lives, and we've just, it's just arrived to us. Why weren't they good enough? Because they don't do what serious Jews do. You talk about the God of the Exodus, you say that Jesus brings you to him. Okay, we know what that's like. You don't look like that. You're posers, you're not godly. In essence, there's a lot more to knowing God than what you've heard about Jesus. There's centuries more. We have been figuring this out for centuries. We have sages and scholars and scribes going back hundreds of years. Are you really going to tell me that this message, and I've heard you summarize it. It's like so simple. You're going to tell me that? replaces all that we've been doing? What do you do with being despised? What would the Colossians do? That's what this letter is pitched at. What will you do with being despised? Do you change what you believe and what you do to be respectable? Do you change what you believe and what you do so that you can think, okay, I'm good enough. That's what the Colossians are confronting. And you know what? You could easily say that these Jews in Colossae have a point. What does the Old Testament say about Gentiles? Uh, they are from the dark, they're in the dark, and they do the dark. They have no life, only death. They have no holiness, only abomination. Their only hope is to convert and become Jews. The only good Gentile is the one who's about to become a Jew. There are things here that resonate. This despising of them as Gentiles. Now it's true. The faith they heard, and, and understand, we can tell from this letter, and we can tell from what we know about Paul's ministry, when these people, if you will, let me be kind of blunt, put down the stone and stopped kissing it because they put away their idols, when they did that, when they, when they saw that this man, the Lord Jesus, who died in Galilee is the maker of the world, when they came to faith in him, they picked up a big fat codex, a book of Moses and the prophets. And they were told, these promises are about Jesus and they're for you. But 
But the faith they heard didn't include anything like becoming a Jew. That's why they're standing here kind of um, befuddled, confronted with their very urbane, very literate, very thoughtful. Maybe they're condescending, but, but they know a lot. They know the Old Testament better than the, the rest of us seem to. I mean, Epaphras, our minister, but... You know, we come to faith and, and they can say, we, we do, we despise the life we had before Christ. We, we've repudiated all that traditional paganism. Th they wanted conversion to, to Christ above everything. They had come to God saying, we are death, give us life. They wanted to be good Christians. And what's put to them, persuasively, in some ways kind of obliquely, didn't really see that one coming, what's put to them is, you need more than the gospel that you heard. Now, you yourself may be discouraged about your Christian life. You, you, may, you may have that thought that's like a, a taste in the back of your mouth of, I'm just not good enough. And you, you need to think, this question is a hard question, it has a bite to it, but it may help you. You need to ask, are you despising yourself? You're a Christian, but you just think I'm not good enough. You see, the Colossians were being despised. You, you may be despised by high-minded, respectable people that you admire. There are people that are concerned about helping others. They have ideas that, that make people smile. They talk about love, even the Good Samaritan. They use words like redemption and human flourishing and as I sort of summarized in that conversation a minute ago, they despise your faith. What do you need? See, there's a fundamental choice here. Do you need more than the gospel? Or do you need more of the gospel? That's what's being, being sort of brought to the surface in Colossae and what what Paul is seizing hold of. And, and you, to today, believer in the Lord Jesus, you have to figure out what you're going to do when your faith is despised. When you are litmus tested with four or five things that you know are true and you know deserve serious conversation but also what you know, and it's clear in the looks on their faces, that you're just horrible. We'll be congenial and neighborly and just say, what a jerk. You have to figure out what to do with being despised for the faith. And there's a question that makes sense to ask. What does God do with the, dis the despicable? the despised, the deplorable. Now, it may seem strange that when Paul is answering this really kind of fundamental and, and more than intellectual, I want you to get that. This is, this is a challenge about the character, the, the, the worth, the wholesomeness of the faith. When, when Paul meets that answer, that question, it's odd perhaps, he answers with the word I. I rejoice. I've become a minister. I toil. And we have to see this connection between Paul's ministry and the faith. So just some things to, to, to get hold of that are basic in this moment of, of the letter. First, you need to know this. Paul is writing to the Colossians from a prison cell. 
Now that's not mentioned in the letter so far because <laughs> it was on, if we will, the envelope. Everyone knows that. Colossians, like the letter of the Philippians, the letter of the Ephesians, Paul's letter to Philemon, they're called the prison epistles because Paul was in prison because of his, his zeal and activity as a preacher of the gospel. The gospel that they have come to believe in Colossae. How to put it, that's not the best look for your religious leader, is it? That's not one that makes you think real great, or at least look real great, when people ask about what church you go to. Well, you know the one where the minister, well, he's in jail. I can explain it. No, you can't. We're not going to listen after that. He's in, he's in prison. The second thing that Paul says about himself is he straightforwardly claims that he is teaching things that those urbane, literate, deeply traditional Jews have never heard of. He, he's just sweeping it aside. No, I have something none of y'all know. Not real endearing in a conversation. What I have to say to you, you've never thought of, you have no way of getting at it, I'm the only one who can tell it to you. And another thing, the way Paul typifies himself, he, he talks about his work, his toiling, his admonishing and teaching. Um, we proclaim him admonishing every man, teaching every man, that we may present every man mature. You see, Paul doesn't treat the Gentiles like trash. He treats them like this precious treasure. He is absolutely indiscriminate in his hard labor. He doesn't distinguish between Jews and Gentiles. He doesn't distinguish between slave and free. He doesn't distinguish between rich and poor, men and women. No. He thinks God's glory is for anybody, everybody. There are no non-starters. See, Paul, he's that embarrassing guy at your party. You wanted to, you know, make a good impression, and here's this guy, and people start to realize this is your best friend, and they start saying things about politics, about economics, about art, and you actually think he's brilliant, but you wish he hadn't said any of those things. It's, um, it's a little embarrassing. It's really embarrassing. Where Paul brought the letter, but before he begins to talk about himself, he, he brought us to this point where he says, listen, if you continue in the faith that you heard from Epaphras, well, Epaphras heard that from Paul. The gospel that Epaphras has preached, the, the, the gospel that has gathered these people and given them new life is, is what they heard from Paul. And that gospel is demonstrated in Paul's ministry. And Paul is very eloquently, um, this is a very, this is a moment that shakes up the room. Paul is saying, I know, look how despicable I am to them. Look at the glory of God's gospel. It's in my work. They despise it. I revel in it. Now, there are three offensive things that Paul celebrates here. Uh, things that he's not making things easier for the Colossians if they repeat these to their, their Jewish neighbors. And it's, it's uh, convenient that the translation gives us words that alliterate. He talks about suffering, he talks about his stewardship, and he talks about struggle. And these are things that, for the context... They're despicable. 
and that Paul holds up as the gold and the glory. So suffering. Suffering is to be despised. Everyone knows that if you're suffering, it means that God is punishing you, that he's opposing you. That's, that's a common sense in the ancient world, the Jewish understanding. So how can Paul rejoice in his sufferings? Rejoice in being in prison, as I've said. Rejoice in being beaten nearly to death multiple times. How can you rejoice in public infamy? He's known by these small communities of Christians around the Mediterranean. But there are far more people, a much larger number of people, who know his name and know, yeah, that's the kind of guy who's he's kind of religious cracked, and he belongs in prison. How does Paul rejoice in that? Well, Paul's suffering has a purpose. He says that. He's suffering for your sake, the Colossians. It's suffering for the sake of his body, the church. And he's rejoicing. Well, he's rejoicing in the Colossians because he sees there that his purpose has been achieved. This, this rousing celebration that opened the letter that, that comes to a first climax, worshiping Christ. Because Christ has come, there's a new creation. And then, and it's a higher climax, Colossae, Christ has worked in them, and they are a new creation. And he's rejoicing in this. You have to understand, the gospel's purpose is the church. You are the point of Christ's suffering. You are the joy of Paul's suffering because you are the trophy of Christ's suffering. And so he rejoices in this. But, but, but Paul's joy is even deeper. It's truly glorious. That phrase, I rejoice in my sufferings, that's, um, you don't want that in your psych report. Let's put it that way. But Paul's, you know, he's clear. He delights in his suffering. Look what he says there um, in verse 24. As the ESV puts it, he fills up in his body what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Lacking. Think about that for a minute. He's not saying he's making up in his body for the insufficiency of Christ's suffering. No, it is Christ alone who has suffered and has taken the consequences of our sin. Christ alone. But in a very important way, though truly Christ has risen from the dead as a sinner of the right hand of the Father, all authority in his hands. But in a very important way, Jesus continues to suffer in the body of his church. And that may be a shocking statement. The more I've thought about it over the last couple of weeks, I, um, it's, a, it's a little breathless. And I don't understand it well enough. This is a, a repeated theme in the New Testament. This is a, a common thing that Jesus suffers in the suffering of his people. The day Paul became a believer in Christ, this is the first thing he heard. This is Acts chapter 9. Paul is on the road to Damascus. He's um, persecuting Christians. That means he's hunting them down. He's finding them. He's beating them. He's pulling their hair out by the chunk. He's binding them and carrying them off to prison with all sorts of vitriol and hostile verbal abuse. No cussing. Of course not. He's persecuting the church. He's on the road to Damascus. And he heard a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So when he speaks of 
filling up in his body the remainder of Christ's suffering. He's not talking about Christ's suffering by which he brings to us righteousness. He's talking about the suffering that falls on the Messiah as he brings the kingdom. And you bound together with him. Christian, your suffering is his. And not only did Paul hear this, I mean, this was, this was his altar call, you could say, but this becomes his ambition. Philippians 3, verse 10, Paul speaking says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What does it look like? What does it look like to know the power of his resurrection? It means to be conformed even now to his earthly glory. To be like the Lord Jesus as he lived on the earth. To share in his sufferings. Now, we live in a society where compassion is an important virtue. Um, it's much touted. But you suffer and let it be your fault. You be a person who did this to yourself. He's suffering because what's wrong with you? And that's despicable. But what we see in Paul is what we see in the gospel, what, what the Lord Jesus gives us. We are united to him. We share in his glory and in his victory. So now we walk in the glory of service and suffering out the loyalty and the bringing of the kingdom. And I know that sounds weird and crazy. I know that, um, like I said, I don't want that in my psych report. But I assure you, I assure you that the believers in Afghanistan who have whole New Testaments or even half the New Testament, they know this theme. They know about this. This is simple bread and butter. And it's despicable and it's our glory. And the glory of the gospel. To not only this is Paul in the end of Philippians chapter 1. He says to those believers, It is granted to you not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. And it is granted. It's a gift. It's glory. It's not going to win you style points. You're not going to write an admirable think piece about you in the Atlantic. It's despicable. Now, secondly, Paul's stewardship is despicable because it demonstrates the gospel. That stewardship in and of itself is um, uh, not respectable. But what it comes down to is downright offensive. Now we know stewardship as a positive word. The careful use of resources and wealth, uh, it's admirable. It suggests self-control, even mastery. There, there's a kind of constructive ambition built into it. Well, in the ancient world, a steward had responsibility, but he did not have wealth. The steward was a man who had authority over another person's possessions. He was an employee. And the owner said, I don't want to deal with this. You do it. Here's what I want you to do. And often, maybe most often, there are different, different parts of the Mediterranean world, the first century, but often a steward was actually a slave. And if he was a free man, he was not going to be a wealthy man. You're probably familiar of a steward with a steward from Jesus' parable, Luke 16, the unjust steward. If you're not familiar, Luke 16, 
this parable of Jesus hinges on this. There's a steward who's been ripping off his boss, and he's going to get fired. And the problem with getting fired isn't that he's embarrassed. It's very clear. If I'm fired, I will be impoverished. I mean, he, he says in the parable, I'm not strong enough to dig ditches, and I will not lower myself to begging for help. To be a steward, it's a subordinate position. It's not one of respect. And notice, Paul says this stewardship, well, as the EFE says, ESV translation, I became a minister. Now, a minister is sort of a respectable word. Um, the Greek there is the word diakonos. And so it's not that minister is a wrong translation. Minister, somebody has responsibility. But a steward is not someone who gets a highfalutin title. He's a deacon. He's a servant. He's someone who takes care of other people's business when they need help. So stewardship, it's not, it's not an admirable thing. But in Paul's mouth, um, it sounds glorious. There's revelation, a mystery, one hidden for the ages, now divulged. Paul brings this thing forth. The riches of God's glory. But no, according to custom and according to pride, what Paul talks about here is despicable. It's only going to provoke disdain. See, in the ancient world, in the Roman world, the Romans knew that any legitimate religion was ancient. It went back into the dawn of time. And this is why in the Roman Empire, although they thought Judaism was just crazy, it was legally protected. They were the one religion that was not required to offer titular sacrifices to the emperor. Why? Well, I know it's a bizarre religion and those people do bizarre things, but it's ancient. It's legitimate. And here's Paul saying, I have something no one's ever enunciated before. And for the, the Jews of the Mediterranean, where the Jews there in Colossae, they had four centuries of sages and scribes and pondering. So when Paul speaks up and says, right, I know, Paul's a learned man. I've read all that. I need to tell you something that I didn't figure out from a single sentence of a single great man who read all the things of the other great men, brand new, out of left field. Here is the truth. And, and that's despicable against custom at the time, but pride despises this stewardship of the gospel. It's a mystery. Okay, quite simply, the truth that saves cannot be figured out or calculated by anybody. No. You can't get to this unless it's revealed. It's been hidden for ages and generations. And, and again, that Jewish tradition had brilliance, and, and Paul knew that, but it could not succeed. Just like the brilliance of 21st century thought, and there is brilliant thoughts. My daughter's studying philosophy at the doctoral level. I've read this stuff. I, I, it's, it's amazing. And it will not rescue us from ourselves in, 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 in the most superficial, earthbound ways, much less bring us to know God. This stewardship, it opens up an utter surprise. Now, again, as I point out, Paul holds on to the Old Testament, the books of Moses and the prophets and the writings. He's not for a moment saying, well, that wasn't true or that's unimportant, but the Old Testament 
essentially, it comes out as a loud, hard question. How can we be righteous and accepted by God? And there's a firm reply, a promise with no explanation. God promises, I will bring you back to myself. I will have you righteous with me. And how remains in shadows and pictures and pieces. So the gospel, the good news, the thing that happened in a corner over there, you had nothing to do with it, and now you can hear about it. The gospel of Christ incarnate to save is an utter surprise. All the more surprising when it's addressed to your stupidity, to your blindness. Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, he writes, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that you believe in the Lord Jesus is like creation from nothing. You are darkness. And the Father sent His Son, and His Son worked and sent the message to you, and there is the light, the face of the incarnate Savior. This is the, the sum of Paul's claim to stewardship. I have what isn't mine, and you can only get it from the one who owns it. And that's why he sent me. Yeah, the Jews in Colossae, the, the pundits in TV, um, the philosophers at Boston College, your neighbors, they reply to this. And they say, that is ridiculous. That is insulting. That is arrogant. That is Despicable. No, that is Paul. He's very frank about it. That is the Christian faith. That is truth for liars. That is wisdom for fools. This is the sweetness and the glory of the gospel. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Now, Paul's third offense here, um, the third ugly element of the gospel is there in that word struggle. Uh, the ESV expresses it, uh, or the, the previous word there, I toil. Now, now, we tend to admire hard work. We have this idea that it's, it's honest, it's virtuous. I mean, gosh, it's healthy. We, we pay to work up a sweat. But in the Roman world, and, and the Jews scattered throughout it, did not admire physical labor. There are artisans, people who, who, who make things that are useful, and they're marginally significant. And they're artists, they're, they're worthy. They work with their hands and with their minds. But labor, labor is for slaves and for the poor, for the people who need to Earn a day so I can eat tonight every day. That's who hard work is for. There's no way that Paul can speak of himself as the messenger sent from the God who created all things and speak of toiling and struggling and anyone think, oh, well, we should listen to you. But, but Paul's work, the way he expresses it, is even more offensive especially for that Jewish critic. The, the vocabulary here, toil and struggle, this is vocabulary specific, specifically used for athletes, runners and, and, and wrestlers. Now, for the Romans, for the, the sort of normal Gentile population, athletes are low class. I mean, the, the, the people like to watch Athletics, they'll bet on athletics, but athletes themselves, 
They're sort of like interesting slaves or horses. You admire them as a thing, not as a person. But for the Jews, it's quite another thing. Jews, Jews who were holding on to their identity in the covenant, they did not attend these games. They certainly did not compete in these games. The athletic games, they were, they were packed full of pagan symbolism. There was outright acts of pagan worship and sacrifice during the games. And the competitors competed in the nude. Now, you're not going to that track and field competition because you're shaped by God's word about the dignity and modesty of the human body. And that's where the Jews were. And Paul describes what he does. How admirable if he said, I admonish and teach. Yes, but he describes this activity of talking and learning with people and helping people understand and correcting them. He describes it like a guy in the wrestling ring. Um, that's like Paul saying he operates with the diligence and, 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 and dedication um, of an exotic dancer. It's just... The, the Colossians, they, they want to learn from this letter. They're like, hey, don't show those guys this part. Like, But you understand, it isn't just Paul who looks bad. It is Christ. Look at what Paul says. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Um, if you want to mock those crazy big guys in their weird costumes on wrestling on TV. That's the way Paul is presenting himself and the Lord Jesus. You want to despise us? I know you do. But this is our glory. You see, by the gospel, Jesus wrestles. It looks indecent. He's too important for that. He wrestles with stubborn, resistant, crafty, determined sinners. The sweat, grunting, the slow determination, that's how Jesus works with sinners. And the gospel, it's for every person. And, and every person means any person. The Lord Jesus comes to the trash-talking opponent and the cheater, and he locks with them. The gospel is not for the good and decent people who are cheering in his corner and on our God's side. No, Jesus came to win us. It really is amazing where the issue is for the Colossians, how are you going to respond to this sort of social pressure, this intellectual pushing in on you, well, wait, there are better ideas, that really is despising you and despising the faith. Paul stands up and says, oh, no, 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 no. You ought to despise us much more because we, we carry the glory of God for the wicked. Our God justifies the wicked. And, and Paul wrote this letter to protect Christians from the temptations in being despised. The Colossians had these high-minded, devout Jewish neighbors and influential persons that despised the gospel and despised them. You know, they're saying, how could God himself not despise them? They had not done any of the things that God requires. They were Gentiles. We know they have no claims on God. They are corrupt, 
from your greatest, grandest granddaddy. And Paul stands up and revels. In fact, he makes the Gentiles, he makes the Gentiles the jewel and the crown. He knows full well that they despise the riches of God's glory. And he full, knows full well that the riches of God's glory are the gift to his people, and he rejoices, he revels in them. But still, there is something at the bottom of that disdain, of that question, are you a good enough Christian? I know me. Why wouldn't God? What has God done with the despicable, the truly despicable, the deplorable? What is that mystery? What are the riches of the glory? What is it that is the opposite of, of this high-minded, scrupulous devotion of the Jews there in Colossae. What, what is the unimaginable wonder, the, the fitting counterpart to Christ incarnate come to rescue the world by his death and resurrection? What fits with that? God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul works this comparison out over in Romans 11. He talks about the Gentiles coming to faith after the Jews had rejected the gospel, the Jews coming back with you can read his argument there more, but this is the point. You see, the Jews have proven this. They have proven that sinners cannot rescue themselves even with God's great gifts. And the Gentiles prove that God rescues some, rescue sinners, by his incarnate son. You know, a good law can benefit a bad man. It certainly can benefit his neighbors. But a good law cannot make a bad man good. And a good law cannot acquit a bad man in court. And the Jews proved that. And the Gentiles coming to faith, dropping the rocks, not kissing the isles anymore, finding their hope and their, their all in the Lord Jesus. That is the hope of glory. You, you, that you believe in the Lord Jesus. Not the hope of glory like, I sure hope glory will come. I'm hoping for. But the hope of glory as the one thing that guarantees it. You can hope that they'll get the field goal and they'll win by one point. But when the pigskin sails through those uprights, you say, that was our only hope. There it is. We win. And the Gentiles come to faith. These despicable people who are from the dark, in the dark, and do dark. That they come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the hope of glory. Oh, Christ. Christ is the one who's making a new creation. Good idea. Come see it. It's real. 
God has promised. God has promised to lay hold of all the ravages of sin, all the unraveled pile of, of confusion, and to knit it back up and to make it whole and wondrous. The glory of the Lord will cover the face of the earth as the waters, say the prophets. You want to see the pits come through the uprights. You want to have hard, absolute proof. It's this. That you, who can give no reason to think why God would not despise you, you have received His Son, Christ in you. You have the guarantee of being made all that Christ is. And you are the guarantee, the proof, the display to all your neighbors that God will not abandon this world to the best that we can do. He will not leave us with what is the worst of all our best working. Christ has come to save the world. And rather than being a question of whether you're good enough, you are the proof that you need not be, that you need Christ. And you have it. Pray with me. Oh, Father, this I ask, this I ask, that you would glorify your Son in our thoughts, in our hearts, and in our conversations, and in our lives together. That you would make us able to recognize how we are despised, how it forms into our thoughts, and that you enable us to resist this by reveling in the glory of your love and devotion and making us your own. We pray in your Son. Amen. Please stand. Um, I'll take up your hymnal, number 304. Our